Good morning. You'll have to forgive all my uh, contortions up here. When I took my coat off, my suspenders popped loose. And I was uh, wriggling around trying to get them snapped. And uh, finally got them in place. I guess that's better than the alternative. (laughs) It's good to see you again. It's been a while, about six weeks. Miss you. Uh, A couple of announcements that... um, we're overlooked. The uh, funeral for Larry Scott is Tuesday at uh, 11 a.m. here in the in the fireside room. And at the conclusion of the service, we will have a retiring offering for the pedicords. As you know, the uh, the uh, dollar has been devaluated against the German mark, and they are really struggling to uh, make ends meet. And so there will be a retiring offering as you leave and an opportunity to uh, help them with uh, with their finances. Would you turn with me, please, to Ephesians 4. Some time ago I wrote in my uh, journal, my prayer for Cole Community Church is that we may be known not by our ministries, as effective as they may be, nor our music, as uplifting as it may be, nor by our teaching, as orthodox as it may be, but by purity, truth, love, and tenderness of soul. I took that prayer from the passage that uh, we'll be looking at this morning, Ephesians 5.17 and following. And in particular, the statement at the end of, of that chapter, be kind tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Jesus said in the upper room that we should be known by our love for one another. That ought to be the thing that characterizes us as God's people. And that is Paul's concern in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Now, um, this passage... uh, is divided neatly into two parts. The first part of it has to do... Whoops, there they go. <laughs> As I say, the alternative could be worse. <laughs> See, where was I? This passage can be divided into two parts. The uh, first few verses have to do with the old you. He paints a picture of what life was like before Christ. Uh, Paul, like historians, divide his, divides history into two parts, B.C., before Christ, and, and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Uh, things are different for us now that we have come to Christ. So uh, he portrays... Uh, the, the past life before Christ. And then he moves on to what we're like because we have put on Christ in the new life that, uh, that we have in him. Now I want to begin reading with verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, or as the New American Standard Bible says, this is what I say and the Lord 
that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual passion or lust for more. Now, uh, this is a word from Paul and our Lord Jesus. He makes that very clear. This is not a piece of Pauline advice. This is not simply one opinion that Paul has. This is an inspired, divine, solemn declaration. What he has to say comes to us both from the pen of an inspired apostle, but it also comes to us from the Lord. It's as though Paul is saying, now hear this, this is what the Lord has to say. So this is a very uh, serious uh, material. The second thing I want to point out is that when when he refers to Gentiles, he's not thinking about an ethnic group. He's not talking about Gentiles as such. Paul uh, tended to think in Old Testament categories. Uh, The Gentiles in the Old Testament, as you know, are non-Israelites. Or the Jews and everyone else was considered a Gentile. When you come to the New Testament, Paul and the other writers spiritualize that term. Gentiles become non-Christians, those outside, those that are not in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. And we are the true Israel. Whatever you believe about God's purpose ultimately for Israel, it's very clear that in the New Testament the apostles look at the church as the new Israel, the new state. And uh, we are the seed of Abraham. We are Israel. And those that do not yet know our Lord are considered Gentiles. So when Paul talks about Gentiles, he's talking about life outside of Christ. And all of us can remember what that was like. If you think back to what your life was like and bring up those memories, Paul describes it for us here in in vivid detail, and you can identify very closely with it. Now notice, listen to what he has to say. These Gentiles, he says, live in the futility of their thinking. Uh, The word for futility here is actually the word for emptiness. There are two words for empty in the New Testament. One means empty of content, the other means empty of result. This is the latter term. He's talking about the consequences of their of their thinking, and you can remember what it was like when you were when you were a Gentile, or perhaps you are there today. You're not yet in covenant with our Lord. Um, our thinking tends to turn up empty, in the sense that we can put our best thoughts to problems, and we cannot think of a way to resolve them. It's characteristic of the world. We look at inner city crime. We look at uh, the breakup of marriages. We look at the proliferation of venereal diseases, AIDS, and other diseases. And we put our best minds to the solution of those problems, the problem uh, now in the Middle East and uh, in other places around the world. And people have no solutions. They can't solve these problems. 
not only on a national, international scale, but on a personal scale? What do we do about the problems of, of guilt and fear of death? And how do we heal a hurting marriage? And how do we deal with our tempers and our, uh, and our uh, weariness with, with life? See, the, we put our minds to these things and we don't have any answers. That's what Paul is saying. Secondly, they are darkened in their understanding. He's talking about their moral state, their moral confusion, chaos. They don't know what's right. Is, is teenage sex okay? Is, is gay good? Is, uh, uh, is it all right to have a little adultery to spice up your, uh, your marriage? People don't seem to know. Some of you may have seen the movie that now is so uh, popular, The Bridges of Madison County. You know, the book was a bestseller, even though the reviews were uniformly bad piece of trash from a literary standpoint, but people really bought into it because uh, the author is saying what people want to hear, that it's all right uh, to engage in an affair because that may do something for your marriage as long as you lock back into that marriage and you're willing to commit yourself to it, then the affair is, is all right. Is that right or is that wrong? Uh, people don't know. A friend of mine describes our culture as as men and women sitting in a in a boat with a little anchor hanging down underneath uh, with fathoms of water underneath the boat and the anchor is locked into nothing. That's what he's describing as, as moral darkness. They are separated from the life of God. That is, they are not in touch with the source of power. Even if they know it's right, they can't do it. All of you remember what it was like to have certain habitual uh, problems, habits, compulsions, obsessions that you could not deal with. You didn't know how to get a handle on those things. Paul says the reason is that we're separated from the source of power, from the from the life of God. Now notice his argument. They are futile in their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Oh, well then ignorance is their excuse. They don't know any better. But Paul doesn't leave the argument there. He tells us that tells us that their ignorance is due to the hardness of their hearts. As I've so often said, the, the, the problem with people having difficulty with God and, and with our Lord Jesus is not is not intellectual. I don't know of anyone who ever turned away from the gospel because their, their doubts mastered them. People turn away from the truth because their hearts are dark, because their hearts are hard, because they don't want God in their lives. They don't want to listen to what he has to say. That fact alone has, has taken away much of my fear of sharing the gospel with people because I know I don't have to have all the answers because it's not answers to intellectual problems that people are looking for. It is because their hearts are hard and they do not want to hear what God has to say. It's just that simple. Paul says her hearts are hard. There's an interesting character in the Old Testament. His name is Ahab. He was a ninth century uh, uh, king, king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, he, he could never get anything right, and, and there's a reason for it. It's because he did not want to listen to what God had to say. There was an incident in his life where he decided to go to war against the Arameans. It's the people just on the other side of the Jordan River. 
And even though he had a non-aggression pact with Aramea, he decided to recapture a city on the other side, Ramoth Gilead, that originally belonged to Israel. But in order to do so, he had to, to gain the support of the southern king of Judah, who was uh, the, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, whose name was Jehoshaphat. So on the occasion of a state visit, Jehoshaphat had come up to Samaria to spend some time with Ahab and his family at a, at a uh, great uh, state function. Uh, Ahab popped the question to Jehoshaphat, will you join me in war against Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said, well, what do the prophets say? So Ahab trotted out his prophets, who were all you know, false prophets. And one of them by the name of Zedekiah put a helmet on his head with horns on it, and he went around goring people and saying, this is what you're going to do to the Arameans. So Jehoshaphat says, well, uh, tell me, do you have a prophet of the Lord here? And Ahab says, well, there's one. His name is Micaiah, but he never tells me what I want to hear. And Jehoshaphat says, you don't say. So they uh, subpoenaed Mike, Micaiah, and they brought him into the, uh, into the court. And Ahab says, if we go against Ramoth Gilead, will we be victorious? Micaiah says, go for it. And Ahab says, turns to Jehoshaphat. He says, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you? He never tells me the truth. He says, I want you to tell me the truth. Micaiah said, all right, I'll, I'll tell you. And he quoted a little poem. He said, I, sh- I saw Israel shatter- scattered like sheep that have no, no shepherd. In other words, the king would be killed. If you go into war, Ahab, you're going to die. And of course, we know that's exactly what happened. And then he filled in the, the picture with a, a statement about what he saw going on in, in heavenly councils. He said, I, uh, I saw a, an angel ask God if he could go and put a lying word in the prophet's mouth, and God told him to go and lie to the prophets. And I read that and I say, now wait a minute, God is the God who cannot lie. Why would he do that? Well, it's because God gives us what we love. If we love the truth, you'll give us the truth. If we love the lie, that's precisely what we'll get. And we will not know the difference. Let me call your attention to a passage in 2 Thessalonians, just a few books away. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Paul is talking about the coming of the lawless one who epitomizes everything that's uh, evil and ugly. And he says his coming will be in accordance with the work of Satan displaying all kinds of counterfeit miracle signs and wonders. And in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned to have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. It's a solemn warning to all of us that we basically God gives us what we want. He loves us enough to have what we demand. And if we don't want to listen to God and we don't want to hear the truth, then he'll he'll give us the lie. He'll let us fall into, into falsehood will be deceived. 
If you go back to Ephesians 4 and you look at that passage and you follow the argument, you see that's precisely what Paul is saying. They are futile in their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance, the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their heart. The little children come into the world with soft hearts. They're, they're described in, Jesus described them as natural believers. They, they have an enormous amount of truth available to them as they grow up. As the psalmist said, the heavens declare his glory and the firmament uh, uh, demonstrates his power. And uh, there's also that internal witness of the heart. There's the law that's written in the heart. No one has to tell us what's right and what's wrong in general. We know. But as we grow up, we get more and more cynical and our hearts get harder and harder and harder because we're faced with innumerable choices. And we either, either will choose to believe the truth and to obey it or we will choose against the truth and our hearts get harder and harder and harder. That's not irreparable. God can soften our hearts. The wonderful line from a song I was trying to call Bill yesterday and find out where it is, just a, a couple of lines where he says, Soften this, this old heart of mine. How's it go, Bill? I'll have him sing it for you later. Uh, <laughs> with oil and wine, right? With, with the oil and wine of God's, God's presence. What we have to watch out for is that hard heart. That's why Paul begins this section by saying, listen to what I have to say, listen to what Jesus has to say. It's a serious business that we're talking about. This is a business of life. We need to hear what God has to say. The alternative is for our hearts to get hard, harder, harder, until we, we sink into moral darkness and we find ourselves doing things that we never thought we could do. Now that's the old, uh, that's the old you. That's what we used to be. Separated from the life of God. Now he turns to the new you. Verses seven, uh, verses 20 and following. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Since you heard of him and were taught in him with, with, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And that's my question. Have we been taught? By Jesus himself, have we sat at his feet and, and listened to him? Have we kept our hearts soft, malleable? Are we responding to, to what he's saying to us? He, he wants to teach us. The problem is, do we want to listen to what he has to say? My father used to tell a story about a little girl that came home from school one day, and her mother asked her if... if, if if she had learned anything, and she said, no. She said, they teached me, and they teached me, and they teached me, but they didn't learn me nothing. And uh, it's possible to sit at our Lord's feet and have him teach us and teach us and teach us. And we don't learn anything, you see, because the issue is not the head, it's the heart. We have a soft heart. Are we willing to do what he wants us to do? See, the... The biblical theory of knowledge is that we grow in understanding as we give our hearts to what we know. You hear the truth and you respond to it, God gives you more. You don't listen to what he has to say, then the whole process uh, shuts down. It's not a question of IQ. It's a matter of the condition of the heart. 
Now, here's what we were taught, if we were listening. Verse 22, you were taught to, with regard to your former way of life, three things, three statements that are made. And, and though it's not apparent from, from some of our texts, I believe these are facts rather than commands. When you go to the parallel passage in Colossians 3, it becomes much more clear there that, that these are not commands. He's simply stating a fact. There it's uh, crystal clear. You have put off the old man. He says, you have put on the new man. You are being renewed. Here it, it's, uh, it could go either way. It reads like this. There, you were taught with regard to your former, former way of life to put off your old self. The, uh, the tense of the verb suggests something that's past and has already happened. You have put it off, like an old suit of clothes that you took off, put in the closet. And you have put on the new self and you, and here he changes the form of the verb to suggest something that's going on all the time. You are being made new in the attitude of your mind. What he's saying is this, when you came to to Christ, that old chapter of your life was closed. It's like taking off a suit of clothes and hanging it in the closet and putting on your spring wear or whatever, and, and that becomes uh, your dress, a new set of uh, clothes. Uh, to change the analogy a little bit, John, John R. W. Stott explains it this way. When you come to Christ, you take that, that book which records the old life and it's put in a brown paper wrapping and and string is tied around it and it's put up in the top of your closet and it's oh you don't go back to that old life again it's over it's done the guilt the shame the penalty uh the grip that the old life has on you is is put away and you open a new volume you start writing uh, an entire new book entirely new book you see and that's what he's saying Except he uses a, a different analogy here. You're a new person. And he uses a word for new that means brand new. Some There's another word in the New Testament that means refurbished or renewed. This is the word that means completely new. You are now a completely new person who's being renewed in the spirit of your mind as you sit at the Lord's feet and you listen to what he had to say through his apostles and prophets. Your mind is being renewed. You're learning what it means to be a new person. And as long as you keep your heart soft, then that truth will become reality in your life. The Spirit of God will take that truth and make it real in in your life. This new, new self, as he describes it, is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It is not given to us to simply acquire more facts about what's going to happen at the end of the age or what form of baptism we should use or, or what our church polity should look like. It is given to us to make us more righteous and holy. Always the purpose for which we read the scriptures. Not to acquire facts, but to change our life. And as we read it and we give our hearts to it, then it begins to work on us and change us. And he describes what that looks like in verses 25 through 32. Now, this is a picture of the new you. This is what we ought to be like. Therefore, each of you must 
put off falsehood or lying and speak truthfully to his neighbor for we're all members of one body. The first thing he says is that um, is that new new people don't lie to one another. Now, lying entails an intent to deceive. There are times that we are in error when we say something. Or there are times that uh, we may distort the truth unknowingly. But lying is is a is a a clear intent entails a clear intent to deceive another person. You know what you're doing. You tell someone that you will do something, and you know full well that you will not do it. Or you tell something that happened to you, and you know it didn't happen at all. Or you enlarge upon it, you embellish it, you exaggerate it in an attempt to try to deceive the other person into believing something that's not actually true, see. And Paul says, don't lie to each other because it, it, it destroys the relationship that you have with other members of the body. You see how he puts it? You notice in each of these, there, there, there are four or five of these negative commands and one positive at the end. And in each case, he doesn't just say, don't do it. He tells us why. He gives us the motivation for it. He says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Because we're all members of one body. Nothing destroys a friendship quicker than dishonesty. If we can't trust one another's hearts, if we can't trust one another's words, then it it, it ruins the relationship. It impairs the the intimacy that you share with one another. You can't trust each other. Jesus put it another way. He said, don't take oaths. Now, he didn't mean there was anything wrong with taking an oath in a court of law. It's not what he's talking about at all. That's a concession to the fact that we live in a fallen world and people do lie. And so we take an oath. We, we, we swear with our hand on the Bible that we'll tell the truth, the whole truth, and, and nothing but the truth. That's because we live in a world that, that's full of liars. But new people don't lie. They don't need to take oaths because their word is good. Whatever they say is truth. They can be counted on to tell you the truth. That's just a very simple thing, but but it's something that ought to characterize us. Wherever we go, we speak the truth to one another. We can be trusted. The second thing he says in verse 26 is... In your angry anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Now that's actually a quotation from Psalm four. If you go back and read the passage, what's hap- what happened is that David is getting the gears from his detractors, and he's really getting upset about it. He's feeling the terrible injustice of this thing, and he's getting resentful and bitter and angry about it. And then he preaches a little sermon to himself, which is what he often does in his in his psalm. Talks to his soul. He says, hey, soul, I have something I want to tell you. And he says, be angry, but don't sin. Now, what he's talking about, you know, that anger is a natural reaction to injustice, whether it's perpetrated on you or someone else. We always get angry when when, when things are said about us that are untrue and unjust. You really can't do anything about that anger. But what do you do with it? See? Do you indulge it? Do you let it turn into resentment and bitterness? And the way you know it's turned into bitterness is if you carry it with you through the night 
and into the next day. See, there ought to, to flare up in anger is one thing. To let it become bitterness and malice, resentment is another thing. That's why we need to square things off at the end of the day. If we wrong someone or if we're angry at someone because they've wronged us, we need to set that right. Uh, Carolyn and I have a friend, uh, actually a couple down in uh, California who three or four days ago were walking around the block and a woman ran out of her house and she's called for help and they ran into the house and her husband was dead died during the night in bed and she said to uh, Carolyn's friend she said the awful thing is that we had a terrible fight last night she couldn't get that off her mind that was the last thing she remembered was the fight that they had had that night now I don't say that to put a guilt trip on you but the truth is that we never know what's going to happen from one hour to the next, and therefore we need to set things right. If we have been angered by someone, we need to deal with, with that anger in our own hearts and, and go to that person and talk about the anger and, and set the thing right and not let it grow into uh, bitterness. Bitterness, as the book of Hebrews tells us, is a defiling passion. Uh, it doesn't hurt the other person. It hurts us. The, the root of the word bitterness has the idea of, of something that, that stabs you, something that pricks you, and, and resentment does that. And so um, Paul says new people are not bitter, resentful people. It just gives the devil a, a foothold. When, we, when we're resentful and we hold on to it, we often begin to engage in in more serious acts of sin. Uh, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. New people don't steal. They don't steal from their employers, uh, their employees. They don't steal time. They don't steal money. Uh, they rather work with their own hands doing something useful that they may have something to share with those in need. See, again, the answer to stealing is to work hard so that you'll have enough money to meet your needs. You won't need to steal. But the purpose of working hard is not merely to enrich yourself, but to have more to give to uh, to others. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Again, here you have the negative and the positive. No unwholesome words. He uses a word that Jesus uses in Matthew 13 for trash fish. Talked about the, uh, the the net that gathers in all kinds of fish, and they throw the the, the suckers out, and the trash fish. In other words, new people don't talk trash. They don't they don't gossip about others. They don't uh, they don't use uh, sexual innuendo. They don't tell uh, dirty jokes. Uh, they don't let any fill and uh, filthy and foul thing come come out of their mouths, but rather they are controlled by the Holy Spirit so that what they have to say to others ministers grace to them. As they have needs, they move to meet those uh, those needs. Verse thirty: 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. For myself, I think that is tied into verse 29. You don't, you don't talk trash to people because it grieves the Holy Spirit when you do. He's the one who's in us to sanctify us for the day of redemption. He's the one who's working in us to make us more holy. And as as Phillips translates uh, one phrase in which the the Holy Spirit's name occurs, he says, it's not for nothing that the Spirit God has given to us is called the Holy Spirit. And when we gossip about people, when we we let uh, filthy words come out of our mouth, when we talk uh, about people to others, and it grieves the Holy Spirit because he longs to see us sanctified and holy. And then in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Uh, rage has to do with explosions of anger. Aristotle said this is a, a this is like a, a fire in straw. It's a blaze. Up. It's when our anger blazes up. Wrath or anger is the word for wrath or for settled resentment. Bitterness, explosions of rage, resentment, brawling. It's a word for shouting, engaging in shouting matches, getting in one another's face, faces, and and yelling at one another. Slander, which is misrepresenting others, either their motives or their, or their actions, along with, with every form of, of malice. Malice is a settled, uh, ill will, uh, ill will. It's hate. It's engaging in, in, in grudges, indulging yourself in, in, in holding a grudge. It feels so good to continue to be resentful and angry towards someone, but it's so destructive of the soul. It erodes away our sense of self-worth and separates us from God and, and grieves our Holy Spirit. That's why he says, get rid of, just as he, in a general way, he said, put off the old. Now get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. And here's the positive side, you see. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, even as in Christ God forgave you. See, what Paul is saying is that the world is full of people that make you angry. There are people out there that that draw deceit out of you, that that would entice you into, into stealing. There's a whole world full of people that Grind our gears, as Howard Hendricks used to say, that, that make life difficult for us, that give us grief. And uh, so easy for us to retaliate or to fall in line with them. And Paul says, no, that what ought to characterize us is that we're kind and tenderhearted. And we forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has, has forgiven us. See, the standard of forgiveness for others is always the standard of our Lord's forgiveness. Peter asked the question one time, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? My brother sins against me and I forgive him. He sins against me and I forgive him. He sins against me and I forgive him. 
He sins against me and I forgive him. That's just five times, but that seems like a lot. Seven times, Jesus said, no, 70 times seven, or in fact, in effect, an infinite number of times. People will wrong you, both in the world and in the church. God says the only proper response is to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And then our Lord told Peter that that wonderful story about the man who, but uh, the king who called his servants in and demanded an accounting. One man came in; he owed ten million dollars. That's what that would be the equivalent in in modern day currency. He owed ten million dollars, and uh, the man said, "Have pity on me, and I'll pay it." <laughs> The going wage in those days was 18 cents a day. I figured out once it would take him 107,000 years to pay that debt off at that at that rate. It was an impossible debt. He couldn't pay it off. And the king forgave him. He had compassion on him and forgave him. Of course, he could only do that on the basis of the cross. So the man goes outside and he finds a fellow slave who owed him a dollar eighty. Again, that'd be the equivalent of today's currency. He owed him a dollar eighty, and he grabs the fellow by the throat and he says, "Pay me what you owe me." And the man said, "I can't have compassion on me." And he didn't. He threw him into jail. And the king called the man in and he said, "What are you doing? Don't you realize how much I've forgiven you? I've forgiven you an infinite debt, and you can't forgive a dollar eighty." Those are stern words, but you understand what our Lord is saying. We have been forgiven an infinite debt, the debt of our sin that should have sent us all to hell, that would have, apart from God's grace. Can I forgive a brother who speaks against me? Can I, can I forgive someone who, who uses me, who abuses me, who takes advantage of me? Of course I can. When I remember what I have been forgiven. But you see, the key is that soft heart. Do I want to forgive? Do I want to be changed? Without that, there's no hope for us. Uh, I, I received a letter from a woman who had read my 23rd Psalm book. And I've never received a letter like this before. It really touched me. And I want to read part of it to you. She says, these past two years have turned my heart into solid concrete. Bitter, evil, hateful, revengeful, vile, ugly words poured from my mouth and lips. I was dead. I just needed a hole in the ground to dump my body. I was angry, angry at God. I hated him. I hated my family. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, forgive me. I once deeply loved God. I once deeply had faith. I once deeply had total trust and confidence in Him. I once loved Him. Then she went on to describe where her bitterness came from. She had a mother who contracted leukemia and rapidly went downhill. And she alone out of her family took care of of her mother, watched her die. When they put her mother in the hospital, her family stripped the house clean, took everything of value out of the house. After her mother died... This woman discovered that her mother at some time in the past had made out her will to her younger sister, who was already very wealthy, owned a 50,000-acre ranch in Canada, 
And she was left absolutely destitute. She didn't have a dime. She had to move out of the house and she had to go on food stamps. And she wouldn't have anything to do with her family. They wouldn't help her. They wouldn't do anything for her. And as she puts it, her heart turned into solid concrete. She said, I was consumed by a terrible disease, an incurable disease, worse than the leukemia my mother had. I was consumed and eaten with hatred toward my sister, my family, and God. Then she described how she opened, as she put it, the bolted doors of her heart. And God gave her sick, broken, shattered, miserable spirit a breath of heavenly pure air. Today, she said, is Mother's Day. You know what I did? I left a a message on my sister's answering machine. A blessed Mother Day, Audrey, she said. I love you. And hung up. She said, I had not spoken a word to my sister in two years. I had had said somewhere in, in, in the book, don't try to make your poor old heart love God, just give it to him. And that was the phrase that God used to touch her heart. And she closed with these words. Oh, yes, Mr. Roper, I do give my heart back to God. I need him so desperately. That's all we can do. We look back on our old life and we see the the qualities that characterized our life. And for some of us, the new you is some of those same Emotions and feelings and those, those sins are part of our life. We want to put it away. We don't want, we don't want that to be characterized by these sins. We want to be more righteous and holy. All we can do is just give God our old hearts and say, soften my heart. And then go to the Word and listen to what God has to say. God is not the God of the perfect but the growing. He's not the God of the righteous, but the God of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let's pray. Father, it's inevitable that there's some here whose hearts have turned into solid concrete, who over the years have hardened their hearts to you, they're unwilling to listen to you, and and sin has set up in their life and they cannot do anything about it. Give them the grace, Lord, to give their hearts to you. To come to you honestly and boldly knowing that you never turn anyone away and, and just give you their hearts. I ask you to soften with oil and wine. Lord, I pray for all of us that uh, that these characteristics that he describes here as, as the new person would be increasingly true in us, that we would be growing toward that likeness to God who created us to be righteous and holy. We ask in Jesus' name.